Good morning. Welcome to Easter Mennonite Seminary Chapel Worship. Welcome to those of you gathered in person in Martin Chapel, and welcome to those of you who are joining us virtually. Sisters and brothers, beloved of God, may you experience grace and peace as we worship God together this morning. Before we begin to worship, I would like to draw your attention to the community events listed on the back of your bulletin. <clears throat> Today, following chapel, we will have um, lunch with the deans. Um, this is for seminary students, faculty, and staff. We will hear updates about the seminary from Dean Dan and Associate Dean Sarah. Um, tomorrow, um, Sue Park Her, who is Director of Racial and Ethnic Engagement for Mennonite Church USA, will um, speak in EMU Convocation about dismantling patriarchy for Women's History Month. Next Tuesday, during chapel and Thursday morning, will be seminary student capstone presentations, which is always fun to be a part of, so please um, come take part in that. And then on March 28th, we will have um, two district superintendents from the West Virginia United Methodist Conference um, sharing with us here in chapel. And now I invite us into today's worship service. We are in the third week of the season of Lent, a season of reflection, fasting, repentance, and renewal. Today we will reflect on a rather lengthy conversation that happened at Jacob's well in Samaria between Jesus and a woman whose name we do not know. I think we could spend the entire season of Lent with this passage and we would not run out of things to reflect on. I am grateful to Jacob Cook who will be sharing some of his reflections about this text with us this morning. Before we sing together, I will offer a prayer to prepare us for worship. This prayer was written by Carla Miller, who is currently the senior pastor of First Congregational Church in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Holy watering one, fount of every blessing, we come to you this morning, opening our parched places to receive the springs of living water that you offer to us. Most of the time, we don't even know we are thirsty. 
We don't know the deep dehydration that scours our bones and parches our hearts. Sometimes when our thirst pangs emerge, we draw from the enticing wells of the world's offerings of power and profit, which leaves us even more empty. Still us, God, so that we might listen to you speaking to us, knowing us, seeing us, loving us. Fill us with your living water that will transform our spirits and souls into springs that burst forth with life and love for your people, for ourselves, and for our world. Amen. Our gathering hymn is Voices Together, number 636, Spirit, Open My Heart.
Today's reading is from John 4, 5 through 42, in three parts. <laughs> so Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you all say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will all worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You all worship what you all do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is with the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the two true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and the truth. Thank you. Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or... Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. 
Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Good morning, I'm Dan Ott, Dean of the Seminary, and it's uh, my uh, honor to uh, introduce our speaker today, uh, Dr. Jake Cook. Uh, Jake is an award-winning scholar, teacher, and preacher. He just joined our team here at the seminary in uh, January to head our Pathways for Tomorrow grant from uh, the Lilly Foundation. That grant is focused around uh, giving gifts to the church uh, around conflict transformation resources for pastoral leaders, congregations, and communities. Jake holds the PhD from Fuller Seminary in Christian Ethics, where he studied with Glenn Stassen, uh, who was one of the founders of the School of Thought or Idea of Just Peacemaking. 
Uh, Jake is the author of Worldview Theory, Whiteness, and the Future of Evangelical Faith. I think uh, you see that um, worldviews coming out in his title, so I'm assuming the sermon is somewhat informed by the book. And most recently, uh, Jake came to us from uh, Wake Forest uh, Divinity School, where he worked with uh, Jonathan Walton on a thriving congregations grant funded by the Lilly Endowment. So um, we're extremely uh, grateful to have uh, Jake as a new member of our community. He's uh, jumped right in, got right to work, fitting in uh, beautifully, and uh, we look forward to hearing a word from him this morning. I'm grateful for the warm introduction, though I expected a little more ribbing, so maybe I need to be self-deprecating here for a moment. Uh, I should probably warn you that I tend to underline the Baptist and Anabaptist, so I'll try to keep this within the allotted time, but I make no promises. <laughs> and I believe that being formed in this identity gives me a certain license to be contrary maybe even a demand to incite reflection upon what is assumed and to risk opening space to hear Jesus anew so that we might hopefully follow Jesus more nearly. Yet I confess that the longer I walk the path of ministry and teaching, the more I find myself acting over-familiarly with important Bible stories. Now, this says less about how much time I spend reading the scriptures these days, I think, probably, and more about how convinced I am that I know how to read these stories, an impulse that I find can obscure at least as much as it illumines, can close the mind and heart to hearing a word from God for the here and now. So I ask that you would pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So reflecting on the story of the Samaritan woman at the well uh, this past few weeks, I've become convinced that at multiple levels, this story is meant to shake us awake in our overfamiliarity, to put before us the most fundamental questions of our faith including, do you know who you worship, who you love, who you devote yourself to with your very life? How do you know this who? Our story cuts against the audience's expectations in some very specific ways. Imagine for a moment that you had not yet heard this story about a Samaritan woman at a well, at Jacob's well, but imagine whether you're a first-century Jew in Jerusalem or a wallflower at an early church meeting in Ephesus. Imagine that you had heard the stories of the patriarchs from the Hebrew Scriptures. Among these stories, the image of a man in a foreign country approaching a well at midday, meeting there a woman and drawing some water together. It's a conventional meet-cute scenario, right? A common run-up to the formation of a power couple. We know Isaac and Rebecca met something like this. Ross and Rachel. I mean, Jacob and Rachel. <laughs> Moses and Zipporah. Here, however, when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day in a foreign country, 
the conversation leads elsewhere. I mean, yes, marriage does come up, right, but not in the way of a proposal. The decidedly different rhythm of this story should alert us, the audience. Something important and unexpected is about to happen. But also to be destabilized here, I think, is a sense of familiarity with the different cultural, religious worldviews at play in the story of Jews and Samaritans, of Jesus and his followers. If the woman or the audience expects, or if we expect, that Jesus is going to perpetuate the dividing line between Jews and Samaritans, he refuses to do so. And the woman's here for it. That's more than we can say for all too many of the religious leaders who heard and hear Jesus' words. She presents as a bit defensive at the start, to be sure. She's concerned about the social divisions and puzzled or maybe amused when Jesus starts his bit about the water. But by the end of this story, the woman at the well in Sychar is the model of genuine curiosity and openness to the mysterious, self-revealing person right in front of her. The woman and Jesus clearly share enough language to have a profound conversation. And the sharing of language is about words, to be sure, but also about the meaning of words, of these specific words, how we expect them to work, how we use them to communicate deep truths. And when so much of what we hear is informed by what we expect, when we're looking from others for confirmation of our perspective on the world, as though it were common sense, it's tough to listen with genuine curiosity, to hear new meaning in our old words. Throughout the Gospels, we hear stories of people who interpret Jesus, his words and his actions, through their fixed personal worldview, sometimes even as agents representing an important group's worldviews, right? So on the one hand, religious leaders see him as a lawbreaker and sometimes a blasphemer. Political leaders see him and his people as potentially a destabilizing force in their, under their purview. But on the other hand, one woman knew if she could just touch the hem of the healer's robe, she would be made well. And one man knew, just knew, that if Jesus gave the order, his servant's paralysis would cease. Underlying these different interpretations, then, of Jesus' presence in ministry is a matrix of faith. Faith, of course, has a variety of meanings, ranging from the beliefs we confess as truth, to active trust in someone. And as we seek a word from the living, self-revealing God, we might ask, which of these senses is most at play? Is Jesus, Emmanuel, the living God with us, to be trusted? Where do we put our faith? How do the thoughts in our minds prepare us to encounter and understand and engage with the living God? At Jacob's well, the Samaritan woman recognized Jesus as a prophet and pressed on with genuine curiosity. So who's right about where we're to worship? And when Jesus responds, he uses some of the woman's words, but he makes them mean differently. Jesus repeats the you-we framing, but he does not use these words to perpetuate the dividing line. Instead, he offers something like a feedback sandwich, with positive words cushioning the negative words in the middle, like two slices of bread, right? So here's our first slice of bread. 
Believe me, the hour is coming when y'all will worship the Father. I assume it's okay if I use y'all here. I mean, it's grammatically iffy, but it's correct. It's close to meaning. The hour is coming when y'all will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus affirms here that Samaritans, and maybe this specific woman, will worship the Father. He's speaking with certainty, predictively, and it's a positive thing. Y'all will worship. Then comes the criticism. Y'all worship what y'all don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And we could see this as a kind of side-taking, right? And we've probably heard it preached sometimes like that. But Jesus is just speaking descriptively here. He is a Jew, and he's about to plainly state he is the Messiah. I am he. Most interesting here, though, is the notion of worshiping the known versus the unknown. That Jesus shifts to father language here amplifies the actual correction. True worship is not directed at what we know or what we don't know. It's directed at who we know. So here comes the other slice of bread in our feedback sandwich, right? The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus not only doesn't perpetuate the traditional worldviewish dividing line between Jews and Samaritans, but instead Jesus divides the dividing line itself. Among both Samaritans and Jews, there will be those who worship the God whom they know, and there will be those who continue to worship what they do not know, or what they think they know. It would have been easy enough then for the woman at the well that day to thank Jesus very much for the interesting conversation and go on with her life under the status quo, right? Worshiping alongside other Samaritans in the inherited ways, according to the worldview handed down through the generations. But the woman, now like the women in the other well-meaning stories, runs back to, to her people to tell of this fascinating conversation she just had. And rather than delivering news that would conform to everyone's expectations, five times had she been married, now not with the one who is her husband, could this be a wedding announcement? She tells of a prophet who may well be the Taheb, the Samaritan's expected Messiah. Could he be? And her people are here for it. Some believed in him just because of the woman's witness. Many more asked him to stay with them, and as they talked, many more believed Jesus himself, trusted him and put their faith in him, telling the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves. If we are to know a person, worship a who, this bit matters deeply. What does it mean to know, to worship, to walk in truth with a God who is spirit? You come to know a person, a living other, differently than you come to know a set of facts. I think here about how the Spanish language differentiates with the words saber and conocer. The second one implies personal familiarity with the subject. And I sense this is the deeper meaning of, and the struggle behind all this talk about water in the story. I dare say we could each articulate our understanding of how water functions in the natural world. 
Having learned early in our lives about the cycle of water, evaporation, maybe you even heard about transpiration, condensation, precipitation. Undoubtedly, we have heard that water comprises roughly two-thirds of the human body and covers about the same proportion of the Earth's surface, about two-thirds. We know some things about water, but I also wonder if we might hear the Spirit of God in this story shaking us awake in our over-familiarity with water, and specifically our comfort with this story about living water. We have certain expectations about the significance of water for our lives and about how to secure water for ourselves to live by. The water Jesus is talking about here, however, the living water to which he has access does not flow the same way. It's not the sort that can be drawn from natural springs, bottled and distributed, though many of our churches do seem to operate as if it were, right? We do not get to put our brand labels on this living water, water, whether to pretend that it adds value to what God freely gives or to police the boundaries of who is allowed to drink from our supply of living water. Jesus has divided the dividing line. Do we believe it? Do we worship what or who we know? So rather than talking over-familiarly about living water, as we have come to comfortably understand it and spiritualize it within our religious worldviews, let us attend this Lenten, in this Lenten wilderness to the possibility that we do not have this water. The living water that flows from the Spirit of God through this story cannot be stored in containers to hold securely for the coming drought. And yet the living water is freely given. Like manna in the wilderness, this water is God's gift of sustenance for a people who know and worship and walk with their God, a spirited living who. The question is, are we here for it? Thank you, Jake. <clears throat> you've given, <clears throat> excuse me, you've given us much to think about. So before we close our service, we will take some time for silent reflection. Before the silence, I will read a poem written by Wendell Berry that was published in 1967. And then I invite you to a time of silent reflection that will conclude with our sending song followed by the benediction. Do Not Be Ashamed by Wendell Berry. You will be walking some night in the comfortable dark of your yard 
And suddenly, a great light will shine round about you. And behind you will be a wall you never saw before. It will be clear to you suddenly that you were about to escape and that you are guilty. You misread the complex instructions. You are not a member. You lost your card or never had one. And you will know that they have been there all along, their eyes on your letters and books, their hands in your pockets, their ears wired to your bed. Though you have done nothing shameful, they will want you to be ashamed. They will want you to kneel and weep and say you should have been like them. And once you say you are ashamed, reading the page they hold out to you, then such a light as you have made in your history will leave you. They will no longer need to pursue you. You will pursue them begging forgiveness. They will not forgive you. There is no power against them. It is only candor that is aloof from them. Only an inward clarity, unashamed, that they cannot reach. Be ready. When their light has picked you out and their questions are asked, say to them, I am not ashamed. A sure horizon will come around you. A heron will begin his evening flight from the hilltop.
the world is fixed and fixated on a false security grounded in what we think we can have and hold and pushes us to overemphasize what we think we know. So receive this word of benediction. May we remember the who we worship. And let us give thanks for the deep drafts of living water our God so gladly gives to all who are here for it. Do not be ashamed, for this is the good news of the gospel, through which God brings salvation to all who have faith. Amen.